All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 40 of Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast. We have a special guest today. Our guest, we'll play a little mystery game here, see if anybody can guess who the guest is. But our guest served as an assistant attorney general for the state of Oklahoma, was the general counsel to the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and for 11 years was the first assistant district attorney in the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office. He is a member of the Oklahoma Law Enforcement Hall of Fame, named Outstanding Adjunct Faculty at OSU OKC, the Oklahoma Outstanding Prosecutor of the Year for 2013, and the State Prosecutor of the Year for 2001 and 2004, as named by the Association of Oklahoma Narcotic Enforcers. And now he's the presiding judge of our Court of Criminal Appeals. So welcome, Your Honor, the Honorable Judge Scott Rowland to the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I gave a little bit of your background, but what else could you add to that and fill in the blanks and kind of tell us how you came to be a judge on the Court of Criminal Appeals? Quite circuitously, as a matter of fact. (laughs) You know, people will ask sometimes, did you always have, I think this is probably asked of a lot of people in, in a lot of fields, but did you always have the aspiration to be where you are now? Did you always want to be a judge? And the answer is no, not really. And as a matter of fact, didn't even really always want to be a lawyer. I remember distinctly graduating undergrad school at OU in 1987, journalism, and I was in broadcast journalism at that time. I was running with a friend of mine, physically jogging past the old OU law barn. And this friend said, that's what you should do. You should go to law school. And I I literally laughed out loud at her. And I said, "I, I don't want to be a lawyer and did not. And it was four years later after I had left journalism, planning to go back, by the way, gotten into law enforcement at the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, that I went to law school at night. And then I've decided to stay in law and be a prosecutor. And I started out in in journalism and radio and a little bit of television and planned to do that forever. Was a country and western disc jockey for a while. That's a whole different that's a whole different <laughs> podcast, I guess. Boy, I didn't find that little nugget of background on the internet anywhere. <laughs> you know, we can talk about that later. And I stayed in and around law enforcement all those years. And it's sort of a closed loop. I met another baby lawyer. When I first went to the attorney general's office, my very first job out of law school, literally in 1995 in January, hadn't even been sworn in yet. And I was hired by the attorney general's office, Drew Edmondson at the time, and he loaned me to the district attorney's office in Oklahoma County to get trial experience. And so I went down there for about a year and a half. And I met another baby lawyer who had come to the DA's office out of law enforcement, and his name was David Prater. And so that becomes relevant in the story about 11 years later, whenever he got elected DA. So not to drone on and on over 35 years of history, but it started out going in one direction. And I was practicing lawyer prosecution my entire career in one form or the other and wound up on the Court of Criminal Appeals when one of the judges retired. And I was I was contacted by a couple of people who inquired if I'd be interested in applying. And so... No, it was never part of any grand design. It was just the next logical step, the next logical thing. All right. So actually went straight from the field, so to speak, to our highest appellate criminal court without passing through the the district court system. Yes, that's a little unusual, I guess. I think there's good and bad to that. I I think it probably offsets. But by that, I mean not having 
actually has been on the on the trial bench. I've been in several hundred trials, I suppose, but n- never wearing the black dress. Sure. Well, only you could call it that. I don't think I could call it that. <laughs> so you have that experience. And then the rest of your court, how does their experience, your other judges on your court, compare to that? Do you have a mix of folks who came from private practice or DA's office from the trial bench? Yes. Well, let's run down. Let's see. Judge Lumpkin is our longest serving member. He's been on the court for 34 years. Fellow Marine, by the way. He is. Colonel Lumpkin. Colonel Lumpkin. And he was a prosecutor down in Medill. What is that? Marshall County, I believe. And then he was on the district court bench down there. I'm going to say four or five years. He was appointed in late 1988 by then Governor Henry Bellman and took the bench here at the Court of Crims in 1989, January. An interesting bit of trivia there. The court was expanded from three members to five after some federal litigation, in essence, based upon the backlog of cases, appeals not being handled quickly enough. So they expanded what had been a three-member court since statehood to five. So Judge Lumpkin has background in prosecution and then on the trial bench. Judge David Lewis from Comanche County also was in the DA's office for a spell, had private practice experience, and then was a special judge in Comanche County prior to coming here. Judge Rob Hudson, Robert Hudson, now he was a a private defense attorney from the early 1980s until 1996, criminal, civil, pretty much everything the way it's done in small town practices like that. And he was elected DA in Guthrie for that, I guess it's three county district stretching up into Payne County and Stillwater in 1996 and served until 2012. And then he worked for Attorney General Scott Pruitt, left there and spent a couple of years as a special judge on the bench. So he too has prosecution and district court special judge experience. And then the most recent addition to the court is Judge Bill Musman out of Tulsa. He was appointed, took the bench in March of 22, so just about a year ago. And he was a former prosecutor in the DA's office in Tulsa County and then a district judge up there for 10 or more years. So everybody's been a prosecutor. A couple have been private practice defense attorneys and all have at least a little bit or a lot of judicial experience. Okay. It's a good mix of diverse backgrounds there, which I'm sure informs different perspectives when you all discuss cases in conference. I think so. And at the risk of sounding you know, Pollyannish or naive, I'm still kind of struck by the genius of setting up courts like this with multiple voices, almost like the jury system. It seems to me that most of the time we get it mostly right. And by virtue of different voices. And I, you know, I've seen things start out in one direction here and, and after going through the process to sausage making, you know, so to speak, come out something completely different. And I think the completely different is right in the end. So, And it struck me that for many of the justices on your court, they hail from smaller towns, smaller communities around the state. And I guess you yourself from Winniewood, right? Right. And what struck me as I was telling that big tale a moment ago the word that didn't come up in any of that was appellate practice, did it, or appeals. And I guess that's a fairly narrow lane, and maybe statistically, it's not surprising that none of us have got that, but every one of us is thrust in to the world of appellate practice, I guess, for the first time in our career. Hmm. Interesting. Does the court have a pretty regular bar of practitioners in cases that you see? Yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, I guess like anybody, I I had been at the district court level for 22 years. 
and most of that in the state's largest county. So I think you get pretty full of yourself after two decades. You think you pretty much know all the lawyers, et cetera. And when I got here, there absolutely is a different, well, there's a different everything. There's a different set of lawyers. There's a different set of rules. There's a different way of practicing. There's a different way of thinking on and on ad nauseum. And, you know, I, sometimes I wish I could crawl back in time 10 or 15 years and apologize <laughs> for all those times I rolled my eyes when the trial practitioner would object during trial to something we've had three hearings on before. <laughs> At the time, that seemed like a stupendous waste of my important time. I now see that it, it was absolutely essential. Preserving that record, yeah. Yeah, but when you're at the trial level, or at least me, when I was at the trial level, I didn't give due accord and apropos or props to lawyers who handle appellate cases. It was something that happened down the line. And I felt like, you know, from the prosecution side, in my opinion, the job of the attorney general's office was not to mess up this wonderful thing I've created at the trial level. And, you know, how foolish. But so, yeah, to get back to the answer to your question, there's a set of lawyers that we see from both from the attorney general's office and from indigent defense or private practitioners who appear here regularly. And, you know, I, I got to say, it's some of the best lawyer I've ever seen in my life. And again, it was largely unknown to me until December of 2017. So I'm sorry for all the people that I ever offended by saying you were wasting my time and preserving a record. <laughs> and for all those times I didn't give the accord that I should have to the appellate side of things. Mia culpa, I was wrong. <laughs> well, as an appellate lawyer, I mean, it just makes my heart so happy to hear those things. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm none too delighted to have to admit it, but, you know, facts, as they say, is facts. Uh -huh. Well, it also makes me happy to hear that you've been really impressed with the appellate bar that practices before your court. That is encouraging to me. So you've got five judges on your court of course, our podcast has focused primarily on civil cases and how our civil system is set up. So just tell our listeners a little bit more about how judges on your court are selected, retention ballot, those types of things. And then if you want to kind of parlay into how your staff is set up and how cases are managed at your court, I think that would be informative too for some of our listeners. Sure. We are selected the same way that all other appellate judges are, the Supreme Court justices and the judges on the Court of Civil Appeals. It's uh, what is, or at least always was called the Missouri model, not elected and not just appointed in a pure sense. In my particular case, I remember I was in the middle of a death penalty trial. It was maybe the longest trial I was ever involved in. There were 91 endorsed witnesses. I think we pared that down to a lean 84 that actually testified. And I came back from trial one day, and my boss, then David Prater, was waiting in the hallway. You know, I had all the files, and I was going to go in and wolf down whatever lunch I'd packed. And he said, can I talk to you for a second? And he said, so-and-so, a mutual friend of ours called, and Judge Arlene Johnson is going to retire from the Court of Criminal Appeals. And they wonder if, if you'd be interested in applying. First I'd ever thought of it. That's the point in history right there, as I said a moment ago. I had no design of being a judge. The only design I had at that moment was to finish this trial, as you all know, who have been involved in lengthy cases like that. And so I decided to apply. And the way that's done is you send in a formal application to the Judicial Nominating Commission. It's a 15-member made-up of citizens in Oklahoma. They take applications. They advertise. They have a website. They announce the opening. The governor declares an opening. They announce it. And anybody who meets the qualifications can apply. It's 
been a lawyer for five years. And you have to, in our court, there are five divisions that coincide with the five congressional districts. So you have to be from that district. In my case, it was here in Oklahoma City District 5. That's been changed a little bit with redistricting back in 2020, but for all intents and purposes, the same block of land here in central Oklahoma. So you send in an application and there's a background that's done. Now, I used to have a secret clearance when I was a special assistant U.S. attorney. They go back 10 years and it is a searching inquiry into basically everything you've ever done. And I've got to say the background that was done by OSBI for me in seeking this position was comparable to that. OSBI does a bang up job of vetting the people who apply just to make sure that there isn't anything in their background that would render them unfit, or at least that would be interesting or essential for the judicial nominating commission members and then ultimately the governor to know. So you apply, the JNC decides who to interview. In my case, they interviewed 14 of us and it ran the gamut. Sitting judges, I think I was the only prosecutor who applied, I believe, and a lot of private lawyers. Most of them were people that I'd known and all highly qualified, as I recall. And they do that background and 14, I don't know how many applied. I don't know if it was only 14 or there were more, but I know that they interviewed 14 of us, the JNC. And their job is to select three names and give to the governor. And the governor then interviews the three of us and selects from that. The point to all this is that although the governor ultimately makes the selection, he or she is not free to appoint somebody who's not qualified just for purely political reasons. It's supposed to, to the degree humanly possible, insulate this selection from partisan politics, etc. And so then Governor Fallon interviewed the three of us and appointed me in November of 2017, and I came here on December 1 of 2017. And that's the way every judge winds up in these jobs. You wind up on the very next general election ballot. In my case, it was 11 months later. In November of 2018, I was on the general election for retention. And it's re-election only in the most academic sense. I'm not allowed to form a campaign or raise money. I'm not allowed to do any active campaign at all. No one runs against me. And there simply is a line item on the ballot. Shall Scott Rowland be retained on the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals? Yes or no? And that's the way it's always been. And I'll be on the ballot again in 2024. And again, that's, I think the design of that is to, on the one hand, remove politics so that I'm not up here spending all my time trying to build a campaign war chest and making what, at least appearing to make whatever concessions might be necessary. But on the other hand, voters have a say every six years. And if I've, you know, proven myself completely unworthy of their respect, then they can vote me out. And that process starts all over again. So um, I happen to think that it's a wonderful process. I, I think, to, again, again, to the degree possible, Nobody ever during the process asked me about my political views. No one ever asked me about my politics. The questions all had to do to a greater or lesser extent with my views about the law, not about particular laws, not how to rule on this or that, but how I approached the law, what I thought about what judges ought to do, judicial philosophy and that sort of thing. All right. And I don't think there has ever been a an appellate judge not retained and they seem to always get about a 75 to 80% vote to retain and about a 20 to 25% vote not to retain i guess there are just people that go in and 
or I don't know, anarchist or what, but they always just vote no. For, they don't even know what they're voting for. <laughs> well, I don't want to say that anybody who voted no for me is automatically an anarchist, <laughs> at least not while it's being recorded. <laughs> but I, I agree with you. It's fascinating that year after year, and again, we labor largely in anonymity here. And I've told friends of mine before, they'll say, well, I've never heard of that judge. And I tell them, well, they're probably doing a good job. The judges that you hear about, especially on courts like this, are usually the ones who have brought attention to themselves through some misdeed. So I suspect that political scientists could have a field day studying that dynamic that year after year since the late 1960s, with a little bit of variation, the same result attends with certain percentage voting no and a certain percentage always voting yes. Yeah, it is interesting. And it seems like in years where their percentages move, they generally move in lockstep. It's it's not as if one person is drawing more no votes than others. It, it just It's just kind of a general sentiment of we want change. We don't know exactly what, but a certain group of people just votes no for everybody. Or I believe it was the year that I was on the retention ballot, I think. A very good friend of mine. And we were talking about it. And he said, oh, of course, I'll vote yes for you. But he said, you know, historically, I just always vote no. And I said, really? I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, you know, I, I just don't know him, so I vote no. And I said, well, <laughs> let me tell you what happens if the no's win. That person's removed from the court. This process that I've just described ad nauseum with the JNC starts all over again, and they're going to appoint another person whom you do not know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the easier and better route is to get to know them and, you know, do a little investigation. I was, you know, half tongue in cheek, half not. But really, I, I really do think the whole process works better if voters educate themselves a little bit about the background of the judges. It's tough, though, because, you know, how do you, especially if you're not a lawyer or a litigant, grade a judge? And hopefully you don't grade them just on whether or not they rule the way you like or not, because every decision a judge makes, you have a 50 percent approval rate. 50% of the people in front of you think you got it wrong. That's the one you rule against. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm aware that the average citizens don't have a lot of information to work from, but I still think to the degree possible, the better course is to look in, find out a little bit about them and see if, if you think they're doing a good job and vote yes. And if you don't think they're doing a good job, by all means, you know, vote no. Yeah. Maybe they need to change the language on the ballot to say, like, do you wish to, fire this judge or, you know, something more articulate than that. Because people may not really just understand what it means to vote yes or no. Well, you know, there's a there's a bill in the legislature right now, and I don't, I don't know where it is, and I certainly offer you no opinion on whether it's a good or bad bill, but it would put in place a grading system for all judges from the top down to special judges and make that information available. So, you know, maybe that would help voters. Maybe. Who's doing the grading? <laughs> you know, it's been a while since I read it, but it, it set up a system of people almost like secret shoppers who would go into the courtroom, you know, and the criteria, at least the last version of the bill, the criteria that it would be based on are in essence the criteria that the Code of Judicial Conduct commands of all of us, you know. The short and long of it is judges are required to be patient, dignified, respectless, courteous, etc. In addition, yeah, well, you, you've given us a very good discussion of the JNC from the perspective of someone who's been through it. So we appreciate that. Janet and I also are big proponents of the system. And in fact, we did a, a whole episode on it. If listeners want to hear more, I'm not sure we can add anything to what Judge Rowland has told you, but take a look all the way back at episode number five, which was our judicial selection process in Oklahoma. So 
That's great. All right. What's next, Jana? Well, if you want to judge, if you'll just kind of walk us through sort of the mechanics of how the Court of Criminal Appeals manages its caseload, how your offices are set up and kind of how a case becomes an order or a published opinion from your court. Okay. And there's the obvious and then there's the not so obvious in terms of our cases. Again, before I came here, I would have told you that I knew a lot about the Court of Criminal Appeals. You know, I lived and died by their decisions for 20 years, etc. But as anything, it turns out there's a lot more moving parts there. There are, of course, direct appeals. In Oklahoma, Oklahoma and Texas are the only two states that have a bifurcated appellate process. And in other states, you have a Supreme Court at the top that can hear criminal or civil cases. And then dependent upon the state, varying numbers of intermediate appellate courts, etc., in Oklahoma and Texas, you have two highest courts, one for criminal, one for civil. And so the court that I sit on will never hear a civil case, and the Supreme Court will never hear a criminal matter. Now, obviously, there are some things that overlap there a little bit. Sometimes the Supreme Court has to decide which kind of animal is this. For instance, a dispute over, let's say, a, a police department. Their municipal jurisdiction overlaps two different counties, and there's dis- a dispute over, do they arrest somebody, or do they put them in this jail or that jail? That came up a few years ago, and although everything about that, jail, police, those are all criminal-sounding words, it turns out to have been a civil jurisdiction, and the Supreme Court kept that case. But anything that's a criminal appeal, from misdemeanor up to a death penalty case, you have a right of appeal to our court. We can't turn you down, like the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, is largely certiorari, and they can say yes or no. And there are 600, give or take, of those a year. And interestingly, our numbers, if you look over 10 years, every number I'm about to tell you here stays somewhat constant, 6, 650 on those direct appeals. We'll take in about that many. We'll dispose of about that many this year. So those are the cases that I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that we do criminal appeals. We also, probably the second most common, are post-conviction. If a person is convicted of a crime, And if that conviction is upheld by this court in one of those 650 or so direct appeals I just mentioned, they then have a fairly narrow avenue to attack that conviction. It's called post-conviction. You can bring an action in the district court attacking your conviction. This is where, for instance, if new evidence comes to light, or this is where you can allege that your appellate lawyer was ineffective and you didn't get a fair appeal. DNA testing sometimes comes this route. Pretty much any time a defendant gets a new trial or gets released, their case dismissed, months or years later, once their direct appeal is finished, that's going to be a product of a post-conviction application. And we handle 500, 550 of those a year. And then there's more miscellaneous things. There are orders. You know, every case we have has a number of orders. One of the things I did before we started the podcast here a while ago was I went through a stack of orders, everything from granting extensions on filing deadlines to affirming or reversing district courts when they grant or deny post-conviction because either the state or the defendant, once that post-conviction is heard at the district court level, they have a right to appeal up here to our court. There are a lot of what we call extraordinary writs where a party who doesn't have a case pending here will seek this court's intervention. A defendant who is in custody in a county jail or in prison can seek a writ of habeas corpus asking us to release them or to 
require a lower court to do something, which would be mandamus, or to refrain from doing something prohibition. So not to drag you way out into the weeds away from civilization, but when we talk about cases, we're talking about this, this whole collection of them. All of them share one commonality, and they are initiated by filing them with our appellate clerk, which is uh, in the building here, the Judicial Center down in the basement. That clerk serves the Court of Civil Appeals, the Supreme Court, and our court as well. Those are then assigned randomly. Where five judges on this court, I get every fifth case. And the next judge around the corner will get the next fifth one, etc. And they're randomly assigned. And my job then is to dispose of the case, to prepare an opinion. And I have two staff lawyers who work here for me, Patty Grata and Melanie Stuckey. They have both been with the court. They probably wouldn't like me saying it, but let's say in excess of 20 or 25 years each, they were both with the court when I came here. And I have a paralegal who's got about a 15-year history with the court. And then at any given time, I'll have one or two student law clerks who will assist as well. We will prepare an opinion on that case that's assigned to us, and we'll circulate it to the other four judges. And I will get their circulating opinions and read them. And there's a vote sheet. And if I agree with every word, including the outcome, I can straight concur. I'll vote and mark it. And if other judges concur, then the case will be handed down without any need for a conference or an oral argument. If I concur with the outcome, but I think the legal reasoning is a little off, or if I agree with the outcome and the legal reasoning, and I just can't hold myself from commenting further, <laughs> gilding the lily in many cases, I can write a special concur. Or if I think everything's wrong, I can dissent. Any of those, anything other than straight concur, will be set for conference. So we have a judicial conference every Wednesday, and we'll have a docket of cases we go through. And if, if it's mine again, I'll prepare a special writing. I'll present that. Sometimes minds are changed. Sometimes they aren't. And ultimately, when we have five votes, the case will be handed down. And we do that on Tuesdays. We send out a list of what's coming on Thursday. And then on Thursday, the opinions are handed down by email anymore. It used to, we had, you know, the physical printed copies, even unpublished opinions, and they were placed in the press room over at the Capitol and sent out to the parties, etc. That's still done. They're still mailed. But I think by the time you get something in the mail, it's pretty much old news now because it's published on our website and emailed. And so that's how cases are assigned. That's how they are handled internally. In addition to the two lawyers that each judge has working for them, we have five lawyers who work for the court at large in the orders division. They handle all post-convictions. So even though a post-conviction would be assigned to me, the lawyers here in my chambers would not work on that. One of the five, or some, in some cases, all of the five, I've noticed they work in collaboration a lot. They would prepare an order disposing of that one way or the other. And I'll look at it and sign off and I'd agree with it. Sometimes ask for a few changes and then that is circulated. And those five orders lawyers also handle all direct appeals on misdemeanors, and they handle all of the orders on behalf of the court. And again, this court, like any other, has to have a lot of communication with litigants, orders setting oral arguments, orders dismissing. Sometimes litigants will seek to dismiss their appeal, and we have to do an order dismissing it. And those all come out of our orders divisions. And so I hope I haven't been too tedious there, I've tried to keep it at at least the 5,000-foot level, but not the 20,000-foot level. No, we, we love the detail. There's a few threads that I wanted to pull on some things that you mentioned. One, 
published versus unpublished. You know, I think we've talked a lot on the podcast about how decisions of our court of civil appeals either can be published or unpublished. Of course, all of the decisions of the Oklahoma Supreme Court, I would say, are published. They issue a published opinion in every order that they enter. That's a numbered case. So how, how does that work at your court? Judge Rowland, as far as published, unpublished, what's the difference? Is there a precedential value difference? You know, what are the implications of that? Well, (laughs) (laughs) there are criteria that we look to. Again, like everything else, there's varying opinion. I'm probably more in favor of publishing opinions maybe than some of my colleagues. I don't think everything we do should be published, but I'm in favor, and maybe it's from my days on the trial level, I'm in favor of a healthy, robust, and pretty current body of law. And I don't necessarily, speaking just for me, don't necessarily think that a decision has to be groundbreaking, seminal case, making new law before it's worthy of publication. There are times when I feel like, even if the law hasn't changed for 20 years, there are times when I feel like this case reaffirms that, puts a little bit of a modern spin on it, and if nothing else, reaffirms how the current members of the court feel about this for practitioners, because let's face it, the whole art of litigating is predicting what a court or a jury is going to do and structuring your behaviors, you know, thusly. And I think that it's, at least whenever I was a trial practitioner, it was helpful to me to know the current makeup of the court and what they thought about certain things, et cetera. And so obviously you're looking, if, if it makes brand new law, it's going to be published. All death cases in, in our court, all death penalty opinions are published. Beyond that, there isn't any nevers or always is to it. We publish, I didn't look before we came on the air, but I would, I would say probably 35 or 40 cases last year. That's about the norm. But compared with the overall number, would I say 600 or so? You know, it's a relatively small percentage of them that are actually published. But there's another dynamic at play here. Sorry to go on so long. But unpublished opinions, of course, are still printed on the page. It's not that they're not. They just aren't published in the law books. And whenever I first became a practitioner, unpublished opinions didn't really count for much. And I don't know if this happened in the civil realm or not, but I watched this happen in the criminal realm. Best I can tell, maybe in the early 2000s, unpublished opinions began to be used for persuasive value. You know, you go to a motion to suppress and each side may have one or more unpublished opinions. And I think maybe as they became more and more available with the advent of websites like OSCN, et cetera. And I was one of the last holdouts. You know, I couldn't believe these people are raving around these unpublished opinions. And, I, you know, I was the last and, and ultimately wound up doing it myself. So the distinction, at least in the criminal side, between published and unpublished at the trial level has dissipated a little bit. Unpublished opinions clearly are not of precedential value. But one of the things that I have seen in courts, and I won't say this one or otherwise, that I try strenuously to not be a part of, there should never be two unpublished opinions that are diametrically opposed out there because that's everything and nothing. Either side has equal standing and what's a trial judge to do with that? So there isn't a satisfactory answer that you can always tell what's going to be published and what's not. I guess the short answer is we have to have three votes, three out of five to publish. And there's always internal discussion about whether or not this should be published or not. And do the litigants seek publication? I mean, on on the civil side, you'll frequently see motions to request publication. Does that happen on the criminal side as well? Yes, it does. There is such a creature as a motion to publish. And probably a third of the cases that we publish, I would say, maybe a fourth, 
are as a result of one of the other parties filing a motion later. Oddly, every now and then, I'll see the non-prevailing party move for publication. And I guess that falls under the, well, I at least want to know what the law is, even if I don't like it. And honestly, I can remember I did that one time back in the late 1990s. There was a case that came out of this court. I thought it was wrong, but I asked for it to be published because I felt like we needed to know what the law was one way or the other. So, Is there a place where you can go and find and or search the unpublished opinions of the Court of Criminal Appeals? Yes. And the easiest way is from our website at okcca.net. Our website got revamped about a year and a half ago, and I, I like it a lot now. It was clunky before. And uh, I think it says legal research. It's across the top there. There's a, there's a bar across the top, and there will be links there. All of our published opinions are available from that website, but there's a link. Now, we do not maintain it. It's maintained by, I believe, the University of Oklahoma still. There was a time when the AG's office maintained it, and it's a reasonably good website. This is also where the unpublished civil opinions live and and a much talked about issue on the civil side as well. The same, it is the same website, the Oklahoma Public Legal Research System that, as you mentioned, is not really an official project of the court system. But on the civil side, that's also what we rely on to find unpublished opinions. I have toyed with the idea, and I'm not trying to make breaking news here or anything, and it's probably like all the other great ideas that exist in Scott Rowland's head will come to nothing, but I've toyed with the idea over the years of whether or not we ought to make those available. Technologically, it'd be very simple because every one of our unpublished opinions is done in the form of a PDF and emailed out every week. As a matter of fact, It'd be pretty easy for a private party who receives those every week to catalog. And I think some do. I think I think the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association does something like that. It's closed off only to its members, of course, etc. But it's decently accessible for unpublished opinions. But I would be lying if I told you that I like it as well as I think I could. Now, published opinions, great. They're all on our website. Our oral arguments now, we have... About two years ago, when we revamped our website, there's a direct link on there. Every oral argument that we have is live streamed as of about three weeks ago with two cameras now. So, you know, we're a full-fledged production. (laughs) For the longest, it was like a webcam. There was one in the back. You could see the back of the litigants' heads and the front of the judges. But now there's a camera mounted overhead over us. And you know, with a producer in real time, and they're they're changing back and forth. I don't get to see them, of course, because I'm on the bench. But you can see the litigants themselves with a good frontal shot of their argument, and then they'll switch to the judges for questions and stuff. So, as you can tell, I'm kind of proud of that. We've we're entering the 21st century. Yes. What about okay live streaming? That's wonderful. What about an archive of prior oral arguments so that you know a law student or a lawyer who maybe is going to be arguing an upcoming case can go and kind of see how it works, you know, get a feel. Because on the Supreme Court side, the Oklahoma Supreme Court side, they don't archive either. We do not. At least at present, they're they're not recorded and archived nor made available at all. And of course, there's no court reporter in there. So you can watch them in real time. But right now, there's no way to, to watch the archived ones. Okay. All right. Well, we have a pirated version of uh, the most recent Oklahoma Supreme Court oral argument that we captured the live stream and put it on our podcast YouTube channel. So maybe we'll grab a few Court of Criminal Appeals arguments to have examples for people to go see what that's like until we get an order from the presiding judge to cease and desist. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good idea to me. (laughs) Okay, we got it. We got that recorded. 
Well, that's great. Yeah, I noticed the website looks very new and modern. And the Oklahoma Supreme Court only a few weeks ago put out their new website. So the Court of Criminal Appeals is a trendsetter and on the bleeding edge as far as the appellate court technology in the state of Oklahoma. You guys seem to be a few steps ahead of your brother and sister courts. <laughs> it, it is the IT people with the administrative office of the courts. I, I claim no credit for that at all. I, I got to tell you, I got a little plug here. The Supreme Court, what used to be called the Oklahoma Supreme Court Network, it's now called the Oklahoma State Courts Network, but it's always been always net. I remember when it burst on the scene, either in the late 90s or the early 2000s, it has always been one of the best free state websites around from the time that it came onto the scene. And, you know, back then, whenever I went to law school, Westlaw and Lexus were about $3 a minute, and they were on a dial-up modem connected to a phone line. And it did, you know, the and it was very slow. (laughs) And then along came OSCN, and you could search Oklahoma cases. I remember thinking at the time, why, why would we ever want Westlaw again? Well, of course, there are, there are features of those pay services that you still need. But the OSCN is and always has been a wonderful resource. Maybe it doesn't get the accolades that it ought to. And it always has been that way, and it's better now than ever. It lives downstairs, by the way, on the first floor. The big computer servers and all that are, are in the administrative office of the courts here at the Judicial Center. That's one of the things I wish every practitioner would schedule some time and come visit this judicial center when they're in Oklahoma City. It's a beautiful building. To me, it is so fitting for the appellate courts, and it's like working in an art museum. And it's just a wonderfully fitting and elegant judicial center. It's the old, you know, used to be the historical society for 70 or 80 years through state history, and it's open to the public, and it belongs to the public. And I'm very proud of it, and I love when people take time. Other lawyers that I used to practice with or against, from time to time, when they come to file something, we'll stop in. And I love giving a tour and showing them around. Does your court do its oral arguments in the Judicial Center? Yes, sir. We're on the third floor here. And everything I've described today, from the orders lawyers up to the five judges, are here on the third floor of the Judicial Center. There are 27 people in the entire court. We have five judges and then two lawyers each. That's 10 lawyers and five judges is 15. And then we have each an administrative assistant or paralegal. That brings us up to 20. And there are five orders lawyers. That's 25. And then we have two administrative people who do everything from man the front desk to serve as the marshal during oral arguments. And that's all here on the third floor of the Judicial Center. The Supreme Court's down on the second floor. They, of course, have a hearing room here in the Judicial Center. And then they still maintain their ceremonial courtroom across the street at the Capitol. But we, we do everything right here. Yeah. All right. Well, Jana and I are familiar with the hearing room on the second floor because when they were renovating their ceremonial courtroom and the Oklahoma Supreme Court was hearing cases in the Judicial Center, we had an oral argument over there and we lost. But you know. <laughs> and you win some, you lose some. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit more, since we're talking about oral argument, tell us a little bit more about oral argument, the Court of Criminal Appeals. How are those cases selected? About how often do you all hold oral argument? Those types of things. It seems like we have an oral argument about every two or three weeks. Now, right now, I see that there's one set for the next few months, about every month. But one could be set in the interim That doesn't mean that schedule won't change. We have some cases which are automatically granted an oral argument, all death penalty arguments. We have one of those coming up in April. Juvenile appeals, where at the district court level, a juvenile judge has either certified 
the defendant as a youthful offender or an adult, and he or she wishes to appeal to us, or maybe they have refused to certify them, and the prosecution wishes to appeal that to us. Obviously, time is of the essence there, because whether or not they're going to remain in the juvenile youthful offender system needs to be decided because they're frankly not getting any younger, the defendant. And so those are placed on what's called a fast track. Those all get an oral argument here. Certain states' appeals. The state has the ability to appeal certain pretrial rulings. In essence, if it would dismiss the case or the result is dis- suppressing evidence that is so vital to the case that the case is no longer viable, those get an oral argument in front of us as well. So in addition to those that are set automatically, any case can be granted oral argument by a vote of three judges. And as I said earlier about publishing cases, there's varying sentiment about how often we should have oral arguments here. I tend on the side of the scale to, you know, if there's any chance that it would help at all, set it for an argument. Let's hear from the litigants. You know, I'm not a philosopher king, and I was not appointed here because I'm any smarter than anybody else. And one of the things that interested me when I took this job was how quickly you become laser focused on, you just want to get it right. You sort of forget very quickly which side of the V you were on all those years, and you just want to get it right as a matter of law. And so if there's any chance that hearing from the litigants might help me do that, I'm in favor of setting it for an oral argument. Again, the vast majority of our cases are not. But we, we have them about every about every two or three weeks, it seems like, around here. And the death cases, their argument's a total of an hour, 30 minutes per side. The, most of the rest of them are 15 minutes per side. And on those fast-track cases, on juvenile cases, and on the state's appeals, we typically will rule then and there. Typically, we'll hear argument from both sides. We will go back and deliberate, and then the presiding judge will take the bench and announce a decision, and a formal opinion will follow. Now, occasionally, the announcement from the bench is we're going to take that under advisement, which means for whatever reasons, we're not ready to issue an opinion today. But 85 90% of those fast-track cases, you'll get your decision then and there before you go home. Wow, that's interesting. Many things you told us about the oral argument process at the court is quite different from the civil side. So, uh-huh. And it may be because of the implications. In civil law, you know, there are some constitutional questions, but in criminal law, everything is a potential constitutional question. Everything, and, and maybe I'm overstating it a little bit, but almost everything could potentially constitute a denial of the defendant's due process rights, because when their liberty or sometimes their life hangs in the balance, due process is essential at every step of the way, beginning with their apprehension. I mean, continuing to, if there's a lineup, is there a photographic lineup or are they forced to stand in all, all of that implicates due process. And so every decision that we make here is potentially appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in some cases to the federal district court and 10th circuit by virtue of federal habeas, which is it's kind of the federal equivalent of the post-conviction remedies that I described earlier under a state post-conviction. And so maybe that accounts for some of the differences is that nearly everything that is done in a criminal case has implications because it can be scrutinized under various provisions in the Bill of Rights. And do you find that your court in oral argument is what, you know, we might call a hot bench? Do the the judges ask a lot of questions? Yes, we do. And I tend to ask quite a few as well. I've got some rules that I abide by. I am never going to be discourteous to any litigant. I just, I I don't think that's my job. And I, I, I don't, I think that it's unbecoming of me as a judge. And I don't think that it helps move the needle or move the ball down the field. 
I also am never going to ask a question just to hear myself talk or to espouse my position. The questions that I ask, what I am guilty of, and I, I think it's probably the right thing for me. A lot of times what I'm trying to do is lay out, well, here's how it looks to me, Mr. Bass. Here's your chance. Explain to me why I'm wrong here. Because right now it looks to me like it's A, B, and C, and you obviously think it's not. So bring me over to your point of view. I think that that's what helps me. And sometimes they do. And sometimes I wind up going, that's what I thought. I'm right about this. <laughs> but, but again, it, it confirms what I'm trying to do is get it right to the best of my intellectual and legal ability. And so that it helps me. You as a practitioner, you get your shot. You know, tell me, explain to me legally, morally, ethically, why your position is the one that I ought to follow under Oklahoma and federal law. So that's what I'm doing during an oral argument is trying to find the right answer and to give both parties the opportunity to have their say to me on that. And so that does result in me. I've never gone through an argument and not asked at least a couple of questions. I'm also mindful of your time, though. I hope you'll find that questions that I ask are as succinct as I can state them because I'm on your dime. It's your clock ticking while I'm asking questions. And if I launch into an exposition about why I think you're wrong, not only am I not giving you a chance to explain your position to me, but but your time is taking away your valuable time, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever that's limited to. And I, I find that most of my colleagues ask uh, quite a few questions as well. So it, it's a balance, you know, I, on, on the one hand, trying to make sure that the litigants get their opportunity. This is, after all, their case, while at the same time making sure that I get whatever benefit is to be had from the oral argument to do my job. All right. Well, speaking of being conscious of time, you've been very generous with yours. And I I have no doubt that we could continue this discussion for a long time. And there's still lots of very interesting things that you could share with us. But so that we can get you back to your important job with those constitutional implications that you referred to a little bit ago, we'll switch gears and ask a couple of questions that we like to use just to bring out a few different thoughts from our guests. So first one, If you were keen for a day and budget wasn't an issue, you have a unique perspective in that you've worked in our Oklahoma criminal justice system at all levels. So drawing on what you've seen and experienced, you know, what would you change about how the Oklahoma criminal justice system operates today? You know, hearkening back to what I said earlier, in criminal law, you have this balance. On the one hand, the defendant, his or her life or liberty are at issue here. And on the other side, you have crime victims or surviving members of dead crime victims, etc. The stakes couldn't be any higher. It's essential then that everybody involved be of the highest caliber, the highest training. So, you know, as pedestrian as it might sound, I think during my one day lordship over the entire system, the first thing (laughs) I'd do, I think I'd raise salaries for the lawyers involved in public defender's offices, in district attorney's offices, and indigent defense at the state level, the AG. It is essential. And I'm not saying that the people involved in that, as I've already said today, I think the people involved in those right now are of the highest caliber by and large, and I'm continue to be impressed. But it's essential that you attract the best and brightest. And one of the things that I lamented during those 20 years, most of my career, I was a supervisor to one degree or the other. The last 11 years as first assistant DA, I supervised anywhere from 48 to 55 lawyers, depended upon you know the particular point in time. And there were a number of times where on the prosecution side, 
And I know from speaking with my counterparts on the defense side in the public defender's office, I know they faced the same thing. You'd have a bright young lawyer who had the passion to do this job. They had the intellectual horsepower. They wanted to do it. And in their second or third year, I suppose maybe when those student loans began to mature, they would sadly leave it and go take a job, which is fine, but not their passion for money purposes. And I always lamented that. Uh, Again, it is essential that you have people intellectually, morally, etc., of, of the highest caliber defending and prosecuting. That's the only way the system really works. So the first thing I'm going to do in my fiefdom here is to make sure those salaries are always commensurate with private sector so that when people make the decision to leave, it ain't because of money. It's because that's what they think is best for them and their family. That's a great answer, <laughs> I think. Yeah. You know, we haven't had that one before. I don't think any of the other judges have mentioned that, so. That's great. I was always conscious of that. And, you know, again, there might be some who are surprised to hear me speak so much about the defense because my entire time was spent in prosecution. But I think the second most knowledgeable people in the world about defense lawyers are prosecutors. Obviously, the first most knowledgeable ones are defense. But I saw that day in and day out. And I would much rather try a case against a high caliber accomplished opponent than someone who's phoned it in. Or, of course, worst is pro se. That's why I say that. And through money resources, I would make sure that the highest quality lawyers are reachable, are within reach of those areas. In the private sector, those defendants who can afford it already, you know, can hire the best, whoever they think is best. Okay, well, we'll finish it up here on a lighter note. Any book, TV show, or movie recommendations for our listeners? I have become what doctors refer to as a man of a certain age, which is a nice way of, nice way of saying getting older. No, I'm just out of pop culture anymore. There was a time when the reverse was true, and it's going to happen to you too as well as you sit there and laugh. But, you know, I watch these award shows, and I don't have any idea who anybody is anymore. I'm still steeped in 1980s music, mostly rock, but... 80s country music, which was on the air when I was a country and Western DJ back in the mid-1980s. I think I've reached a point where I don't look to, I read a few books here and there, but I don't look to books or movies to fill any intellectual void in me. And and luckily so, because I think that's a losing proposition. So my wife and I wind up watching things that are pretty much intellectually bankrupt. We're HBO series, you know, we're watching one right now that is just absolutely nothing more than high school teen drama. And we watch it <laughs> religiously. So. What about, there's, you know, there's a lot of true crime shows out there these days. Those probably are hard to watch for you, given your, your background. I've never gotten into those with one exception. I, I love Blue Bloods. And I always liked Law and Order. And I think I haven't watched Law and Order for years, but I would tell my wife over the years, whenever I was still a practitioner, the conversations that were had with the prosecution and defense lawyers and the prosecution and police officers, with one exception, those were so realistic to me. And almost every time I watched one of those, I could tell you a case I had where that. Now, the one exception to that is on those shows, the defense attorney always brings the client in for an interview with with the prosecution. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Makes for good TV, not for good criminal defense. (laughs) No, it's not. It really happens in real life. But that's the only one I ever really watch. But the rest of them, I do not. I've got a daughter who's in law school right now, and she loves podcasts, in particular true crime. And I just, I don't know. I guess it was like extending my work day into the evening from watching those. But I I never have been a big fan of those. I, I like Blue Bloods. 
but it doesn't feel as much like extending criminal law into the evening the way it used to whenever I would watch Law and Order. I like the Rockford Files. Remember that show from the 1970s? I can't say that I do. Chase. James Garner. <laughs> I will search the channels on those free smart TV channels to see James Rockford, the old private investigator from the late 1970s and early 80s. So no, looking to me for recommendations on pop culture, that's a dead end road, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Winnie Wood, Oklahoma has given us some great ones, you know, former Oklahoma Sooner running back and Chicago Bear and Houston Texan James Allen. He basically grew up in my wife's home. He's younger than us. My wife is from Winniewood also, and he's the same age as my wife's younger sister, and he would hang around over there all the time and with others, and her mother would cook meals for all of them. He and some of the other football players would hang around over there, so good family and a good good guy. Good. Hey, I wasn't expecting a personal connection there. So, Oh, yeah. I know his uncles. When you're from Winniewood or Minko, as it might be, you know everybody, you know? You do? And everybody's family knows everyone. <laughs> we, had a, we had a family business there. We had a restaurant, and I, I worked in that restaurant from the time I was 13 years old. And so not only is it a small town, it's a small town, nearly every single one of whom would come into our restaurant you know, every week or two. And so I don't know everybody there now, but I know most of their relatives and most of their ancestors. What about Joe Exotic? <laughs> Joe Exotic is not from Winniewood. <laughs> He blew into town there in the late 1990s and set up the zoo, but he's not really from there. I'm glad we got that on the record. (laughs) Another famous Winnie Woodian, if that's a word, General Tommy Franks. His uncle, Roy Franks, lived next door to my parents. And whenever I was in high school, I was in FFA and showed pigs, Yorkshire white pigs. And at the conclusion of the show season, Tommy Frank's uncle, Roy Franks, would haul those to Oklahoma City for me to the sale barn. He and his wife lived next door. Wow. And I've never met Tommy Franks, but I know his uncle, Roy. Okay. Well, to add to your list of great Americans that Winniewood has given us, we'll add Judge Scott Rowland. So thank you for your time. You've been a great guest and it's been a lot of fun. And I hope your daughter who likes podcasts will listen and hopefully we did a good job. This has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Jana and I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast. If you like what we're doing with the show, you can support our work by checking out our sponsor, OklahomaForms.com. Oklahoma Forms is an AI-enabled drafting platform that helps Oklahoma lawyers draft better documents faster. There are automated forms to help lawyers in many practice areas, from estate planning to real estate. So check it out at OklahomaForms.com. You can find all of our past episodes, whether that be episodes discussing recent Oklahoma Supreme Court opinions or interviews of a number of fascinating guests, ranging from the Oklahoma Solicitor General to a referee from the Oklahoma Supreme Court to many judges from the trial and appellate bench. Find it all on our website, oklahomaappeals.com. Until next time, bye-bye.